0: Good morning everybody. Um, I am here to talk about, well actually first let's talk about this. Uh, My disclosure is that I have written a book and that I have a bias that I'd like to put up out front. Um, We need to treat the whole person uh, which sometimes we haven't been very good at in conventional medicine. The sum is greater than the parts and that will be something that Um, comes through in the talk and the other thing that will come through in the talk is that we don't know everything and I think it's always really important to remind ourselves of that as we deal with very complex problems in general, I see that we're really at a at a crossroads right now. The, the system, starting with the Institute of Medicine, for many years, for almost 20 years now, has been talking about transforming the healthcare system. And we are at the time when transformation needs to happen. And we'll talk about what some of that might look like. Uh, those are the learning objectives. So, in general, what we're finding when we look at some studies done by um, uh, by the uh, NHIS and also by uh, David Eisenberg from Harvard is that there's increasing use of complementary alternative medical services and in integrative medicine. And it's very interesting because these services are generally out of pocket for most patients. They, in 2007, were spending upwards of 33 billion dollars out of pocket on those services. And that was counting only adults. Um, And the question is why? Why are people doing this? Is it a matter of getting customer service? Are they tired of the seven-minute primary care appointment? Are they tired of being interrupted after an average of, does anybody know? How, how long do physicians let a patient talk before they interrupt them? 20 seconds. 20 seconds, you're overestimating, it's about 16. Um, there, there is a spread, there is a, it's somewhere between 16 and 24, so you're absolutely right. You know, we're, we're, the model of medicine, the business model of medicine is pushing everybody to the point where we can't stand it anymore. Uh, is there a better patient experience in, in some ways other than just, just the time? Is, what's the cost? To, I mean, the cost to them is huge. What's the value to them? People, um, people talk with their pocketbooks. They're letting us know that there is something there of value and we should be paying attention. Um, and is there a gap in services? So particularly in pain... People turn to complementary alternative services in integrative medicine. Why are they doing that? What are we missing in allopathic medicine? Um, And do they trust us? And that's a big and important issue as well. Um, So what is the risk of standard care, the standard stuff we do out there? This has been in the papers, this has been in the press for over 20 years, longer than that. We certainly know about opioids. So prescription opioids, inadvertent overdoses are killing 46 people uh, a day. That's more than heroin and cocaine combined. It's higher than motor vehicle accidents in many states. Uh, we have escalating drug use and procedures, so if you look at the 600% uh, increase in outpatient procedures in surgery centers and the escalating doses of drugs that we use, you know, the, in, the United States uses 50 times more opioids than the rest of the world combined um, with a small fraction of the population. Um, And yet we we don't have great results. We don't have any better results than than any other countries. In some ways, we have much worse results in terms of our ongoing disability and chronic pain. Uh, Frequency of back surgery tends to correlate more with the numbers of back surgeons available in the community than they do with any change in pathology from community to community. Those things are very troubling, and those statistics are out there. And uh, Don Berwick, um, who is the, he was the founding CEO of Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, which is an organization out of Harvard. Um, He is the man who coined the phrase, the triple uh, aim. Uh, The triple aim being um, better, uh, better outcomes from healthcare, better patient satisfaction, and lower cost. They've added a quadruple, a fourth, Uh, uh, aim and that is a less provider burnout. And basically he has called medical care a public health hazard. Starfield was one of the first to put the statistics together. She was able to find that hospital-based health care was the third leading cause of death in North America. Now, I and my colleagues, I don't know anybody who went to medical school or healthcare professional school of any kind in order to become the third leading cause of death. How did this happen? We make, on average, one mistake per inpatient per day. Basically, don't go into a hospital unless you have an advocate with you. The IOM reports have come out over the years to Air Is human is the first one. It actually predated the Starfield report and then US Healthcare and International Perspective with the subtitle Shorter Lives, Poorer Health. So we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. It costs double the nearest uh, second spender and then much more than than that for, for most other countries. So we're spending at least double what everybody else spends and we are, if you compare us to similar uh, wealthy countries, and so they compared us to 16 other countries. We die younger, we have poorer health, we have more chronic disease. We are not getting value, we are not providing value for our population. So, what's, what are the solutions we turn to? Well, through IHI, John Berwick's organization, they turned to accountability, measurement, scrutiny, incentives. It was, it was looking at quality improvement. And and they did this for 26 years. If if you have the the interest, there's a wonderful talk by Don Berwick that you can find on YouTube. It uh, was his address to the 37th annual uh, meeting of IHI. And in this, he took a quantum leap. And he basically said, "We we can't QI our way out of this. We can't improve our way out of this. We need to transform the system. We're on the wrong path. We need to switch. We need to do something dramatically different, and that—that um, is—it's uh, uh, it, a wonderful talk, very well worth listening to. Um, so the results of of what we've done till now with QI is we've improved minor features about patient safety, but we haven't made any dent. In the major problem, that we're the third leading cause of death, and that's just looking at hospital-based medicine. That's not even outpatient medicine. And we haven't brought costs under control. We haven't stemmed the tide of burnout and suicide among physicians and other health care providers. Uh, physicians, we do have the data on. Primary care practitioners kill themselves at three times the rate of similar professionals. Um, and so what we need to look for we need, to, we need to recognize that our system of medicine is not actually a healthcare system. It's not about health, it's about treating disease, managing chronic diseases, managing disease, and most, most of our healthcare, 75% of our costs go on chronic diseases. We're out there managing chronic diseases without really looking at it from a health perspective. And what we need to do is create health and promote health. We need whole-person care in order to do that. We need to be able to spend time and give attention. So how do we do that? How do we adjust the uh, the business model that we're stuck with right now? Now, medicine came into its heyday. We became the superstars with the advent of the early drugs, things like antibiotics. Uh, antibiotics dramatically changed what our expectations were. For example, uh, before anti- the antibiotic era, 50% of people died from pneumonia. That doesn't happen now. Um, so we, we developed this, um, this feeling that there needed to be a magic bullet for everything. And we're still operating under that delusion, because it is a delusion. Most of the things we do in medicine, I mean, some of them are brilliant and wonderful. You take people who are, are uh, dramatically injured, they're, they're catastrophically injured, some of the surgeries we can do, some of the drugs we have that are life-saving, we do amazing things. I don't mean to disparage that part of medicine. But when we're talking about chronic conditions, Chronic pain uh, is part of many other chronic conditions like heart disease and peripheral vascular disease and diabetes, um, and we look at those conditions, we don't have a magic bullet. We're not doing that well, and we're, we, our approach is not helping people live fuller lives, live better lives. So we have to recognize that and come up with a different model. Healing is is always an option, I like to say to my patients. And very often they'll look at me and they'll say, really? Because they've never heard that before. And I'm not surprised, because I think I went through medical school without hearing about healing. We heard about healing of surgical wounds, but that's about it. The, The whole concept that our body has the capacity to heal and works at doing that for our entire lives, you know, till they drop us six feet down, our body is still trying to heal. And we don't take that into account in our common medical practice. We don't teach our students about that. And so we have trouble practicing that way. So we have been really good at creating lifelong customers for our system. Is that really what we want to do? It isn't. The business model wants us to do it, but we're at odds with that. How do we... How do we deal with this? How do we change this? How did we get this wrong? How did we get it so wrong in pain medicine when you look at what our results have been? Well, partly the model of care for pain medicine started with anesthesiology, with John Bonica, who was an anesthesiologist. He'd uh, worked in the military, he'd worked very extensively, and he had this idea uh, as an anesthesiologist treating uh, pain patients through his military experience that pain medicine actually needed to be its own thing and it was a brilliant idea and he had a wonderful concept along with Bill Fordyce up at the University of Washington. And this was the multidisciplinary team approach to chronic pain. And they started this this program, it's really the only model that has still been validated to be of any benefit. Uh, And they had a full comprehensive functional restoration program. The problem is that over the years, through pressures from insurance and the finances and the business model, um, the, most of the comprehensive programs have fallen by the wayside. We don't have them anymore. Uh, And what we have is limited services available within anesthesiology communities. And it's not just anesthesiology, of course, because physical medicine rehab is in there, sports medicine is in there. There's other specialists who have have weighed in on this. But they they basically still follow a lot of the model of anesthesiology. And it is a limited model in terms of what it offers, what it's allowed to offer. And um, we need need to... um, uh, to go back and 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 look back at what was working in Vanika's in days um, and we focus on the pain scores which is the wrong metric there's an excellent article the the ref- the reference for that is in tiny print at the bottom by Valentine and Sullivan uh, looking at how useless pain scores are so I don't like to look at them I don't I mean if I ever go into a doctor's office for anything and they ask me what my pain score is I refuse to give it because it it's a it's a useless measure. I've met people with eight out of ten pain who are functioning just fine, and I've met people with three out of ten pain and they can't get out of bed. Um, i've I've had patients who from uh, you know over the span of an appointment will will go from ten to five to six to seven and up and down because frankly, pain does fluctuate and so as soon as you give a pain score you kind of feel married to it and you feel you have to justify I said I had an 8 so I better have an 8 for the whole appointment otherwise the doctors gonna think I'm faking it and just it's it's just the wrong thing to do it has led us in bad directions the pressures of modern practice have put pushed us to look and accept simple solutions for what are extremely complex problems And I love this quote by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. As human beings, we have a storytelling problem. We are a bit too quick to come up with explanations for things before we actually have explanations for them. And I can tell you from my own practice of a very complex set of of wonderful patients, but very complex patients, uh, how many times do I look at them and say, look, I." I think this is what's going on, but this is only one of the narratives I can give you. I don't really know. And I know that that's, for for a lot of physicians, we feel we're letting our patients down when we say that. But what I find is that they actually have more confidence when they hear me say that, because in their heart of hearts, they know. They know we're giving them simplified answers. And it's better to be truthful and upfront So what distinguishes integrative medicine and integrative pain medicine from conventional medicine? It isn't just the stuff we do. It isn't that I just put acupuncture on the menu or something else on the menu. I have other things that I choose. It's my whole approach to how I approach the problem that that I'm dealing with. I focus on health instead of disease management. Every single patient who comes in to see me, I approach with, okay, what are your habits? what do you do that is either contributing to your health or failing to contribute to your health? So a lot of people think that our health is predetermined, that no matter what we do, it's genetically coded. What percentage of our our health outcomes come from genetics? I'm taking votes. Is it 90%, you can raise your hands, 90% of our health is determined by genetics. 80, 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20. It's 20 to 30. That's the, that's the, uh, the estimate. The rest of it is, is, comes from epigenetics, which means things that we eat, drink, think, feel, and do. They change the the genetic expression. They, They change which genes are turned on, which genes are turned off. So not everybody who has genetics for heart disease gets heart disease. Well, why? Not everybody who has genetics for cancer gets cancer. Why? Because of what we eat, drink, think, feel, and do. That's more important. So you can always focus on health. Uh, doing prevention, uh, this is a quote from uh, uh, Sackett up in um, uh, Ontario in Canada. It saves, focusing on, on health saves the trouble of being sick. Um, so what's a diagnosis? So my profession, in general healthcare, we are fixed on having a diagnosis. The billing, the coding, the entitlements that, that patients get from uh, their, insurance, their insurance carriers. It's all dependent on a diagnosis, but what is a diagnosis? It's a concept. Concepts, by definition, um, they take the, the major characteristics of, of, a, of a set of, of things, a set of items out there in the world, and they boil them down to a lowest common denominator, and they label it. So diagnosis is a convenience, that helps us get through the world. So I'm reminded of an experience when I was uh, walking my 18-month-old nephew um, uh, out in the the spring weather, and we were walking down the street, I was pushing him in a stroller, and suddenly he got so excited about something, he just was, uh, you know, he had just seen the most exciting thing in the world as far as I could tell. He was gesticulating and pointing and making noises and giggling, and I looked to see what he was seeing. And he was seeing something, and it was coming out of the ground. It was brown. It had all these textures on it that were different, that, that light was different all around them. It was really interesting. And then, and then it, was, it was topped off with these green flappy things, and they, they shone in the light, and they had different shapes and slightly different colors. And I looked at it, and I said, oh, a tree. And then I realized he's having a lot better time than I am and it's because he's looking at the individual characteristics and I'm just looking at the concept so when we look at or we say you know we label a palm tree an oak tree a pine tree when we call them all a tree we're correct but we're we're missing the individual characteristics and that's what we do with our patients with our diagnosis Now, it's impossible for us to walk through our daily life and appreciate every tree for the unique uh, experience that it is. We'd never get past, you know, we'd never get anything done. Um, it's impossible for us to do that in medicine as well. Diagnosis is important. Diagnosis in acute care is crucial. You need to know, is this a chest pain from a a myocardial infarction, uh, an aortic aneurysm that's bursting? Is this indigestion? You you need to know that. You need to know that quickly. And so you need an algorithm to find out, and you need an algorithm for treatment, and and that's going to save more lives than it harms in acute care medicine. But in chronic care medicine, things change. We don't need a rapid diagnosis and the details do matter more than we, we give them credit for in many instances. So there are advantages and disadvantages to this phenomenon of a diagnosis. Um, Medicine's like a game of dots. Now, I don't know how this is. I haven't seen this animation on when it's been transferred here. My animation was pretty lame. We'll see how it translated. So medicine's like a game of dots, connect the dots. We're looking at, okay, what's the x-ray say? What does the blood test say? What does the um, certain features of the physical exam say? And we're trying to put all those pieces together. But what about the connectors? They gave me all my dots my dots had prettier colors, and there they move around. Um, and, and so what I, what, we're, when we're talking about the connectors, those are some of the connectors. And when you look at primitive systems of, me- of medicine that have been around for millennia, they start with the family with what's happening in the community. They do energy medicine. They look at at so many different things that we don't include in our our equation when we're making a medical diagnosis. But all of these things are extraordinarily important uh, in terms of of what's happening in a patient, the problem is that science in these areas is just beginning. Science of the microbiome um, is is exploding. The the uh, um, what the 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 influence of the the mass of bacteria that's in our gut uh, and in and around us, the influence that that has on our overall health. Uh, fascia. I never. I mean, fascia when I was in medical school was. Um, was considered junk. You just cut it out and threw it away. It was a structure, it had no function. Um, the, the, the connection with inflammation of how that really links all systems. We now know that, that we used to think there was a blood-brain barrier and that uh, uh, the immune system didn't really affect the brain. Well, now we know there's a direct connection between the immune system and the brain. This is a little mind-blowing. So who and what are we treating basically is another thing that it distinguishes integrative uh, strategies from conventional. Um, are we treating the tests? All too often I look at people and I see how people, their other practitioners have gone through and treated all the tests just right, but the patient's still a mess. What, what's, what have we missed? Are we treating a diagnosis? We've already discussed what those problems are. So um, these are the things that I never learned in medical school, nutrition, I had, I had four hours of scheduled nutrition education. For two of those hours, nobody showed up to teach anything. Um, I, I spent, I can't tell you how many hours I spent learning about Hirschsprung's disease or pheochromocytoma. I saw one pheo in medical school. I have ruled out two of them since, and I probably spent, I don't know, 12 hours learning about it of, of my medical school education. Um, two hours on nutrition, for something that could, has been able to help every single patient I have seen every day in my practice. And so there's a disproportionate emphasis there. Exercise, didn't learn anything about that. Enormously expensive, expensive. Enormously not expensive and enormously important. Um, sleep, uh, you know, sleep is now becoming uh, more of a topic. Stress management. Stress is, the, is such a root cause of so much of our our disease. If we can balance our stress and anti-stress system, we can be much healthier people. And we live in very stressful environments. And once we're sick, we're even more stressed. Work-life balance. Certainly, we didn't learn much about our own. You know, we used to complain jokingly that if we were on call every other night during surgery, that we missed half the cases. Um, as opposed to we didn't have any sleep for 36 hours and then, you know. Uh, Myofascial pain is the commonest cause of pain. I, I didn't even hear the word through medical school, and the students who come through our clinic now have heard the word, but they don't know much about it, and it is the commonest cause of pain. I'll talk a little bit about it because I do a lot of work on that. And pain in general. If you look at the averages at the medical schools, veterinary medicine has more consistent pain education for more hours than than doctors for human medicine. This This has to change. And the man in the bed says, I think I see the problem, most of me is missing. So what I learned about muscles in medical school, I I am gonna talk a bit about myofascial pain because it is uh, what I spend a long time doing. I learned the anatomy because I needed the surface anatomy to know where to cut to get to what's important on the inside, that was the basic um, uh, reason we learned about muscles. Uh, We didn't learn about the function of muscles particularly and I'm giving you here some references that um, uh, talk about the importance of, of myofascial pain and how prevalent it is. Um, It is the commonest cause of all pain uh, and many integrative medicine and CAM practitioners provide this care. They have expertise in these hands-on body therapies that treat this and that's one of the major reasons that people leave allopathic care and go to uh, complementary care. This is the gap in supply and demand or one of them anyway. Um, And then this was uh, an early study done in the 70s by Gunn and Melbrandt looking at back pain patients who were disabled versus back pain patients who were easily able to go back to work. They did this for workers' compensation. And they were able to show that there's these tender points uh, that are now called myofascial trigger points that uh, Janet Travell has also written about that are quite extensively written about now that were the difference. And so here you've got um, right there, you've got a, a, a density. A, a, this is just a regular ultrasound, and that's a trigger point. This is a different way of finding it. This is a elastography using a vibration device, and I'll show you the images we can now get. These were done by S- Sidcar and Shaw. So here is uh, the regular trigger point, and this is when you turn on the vibration machine and the, um, the Doppler picks up the color, um, and this is an area of... of uh, um, increased density and decreased elasticity so it's a rigid part of the muscle and uh, they can show also that uh, in, an, in an unaffected muscle you don't see that so we now people used to say oh I don't believe in trigger points well it's now not a matter of belief it's now a matter of uh, being able to detect them um, this is the treatment of a, uh, That's an acupuncture needle that's right there. This is an upper fibers of trapezius uh, trigger point that I'm treating. So muscles can be the source of pain even when there's underlying pathologies such as arthritis, uh, such as herniated discs, such as uh, sprains, strains, even fractures. And muscle, this muscle tightness and its consequences are treatable in most cases and in many cases this will make the difference between function and dysfunction. The other thing that happens in chronic pain that, that is very underrecognized by even most of the, the professionals working in the field but it's been shown by the neuroplasticity people is that we rewire our brain and we begin to co-contract muscles rather than be able to differentiate and do fine motor coordination. So if we're walking, we're we're contracting all the groups of muscles, the ones that are supposed to propel us forward, the ones that are supposed to help us stand, the ones that are supposed to get us to go backwards, but we're co-contracting them. It's so much effort, and this is why uh, many people fail physical therapy. And some physical therapy schools are teaching it, but most haven't caught up to that yet, Um, and then I'm giving you references on this. So what are the risks, Uh, I told you some of the risks of, of conventional medicine, what are some of the risks of integrative medicine? So there's this statistic kicking around out there that there were 86 deaths in Europe over 45 years Of acupuncture. The British Acupuncture Council um, uh, estimates one per 10,000 adverse events and the adverse events can be as minor as a vasovagal episode, fainting or feeling lightheaded. Um, So when we're dealing with the alternatives um, we're, we're also dealing with Uh, how do we deal with the evidence? For many of the integrative strategies, it's difficult to get the evidence. It's been very difficult to figure out what is the best way to have a control group for acupuncture, for instance. And there are many, many different uh, opinions on this. Um, so ha- how, do we, how do we do this? Of course we keep working at it, we all need evidence. Um, we need evidence for the conventional strategies as well. What on average uh, of the conventional medicine strategies that we do, counting all our surgeries, all our drugs, everything, what percentage do we have good evidence for? I'm gonna start at the top, 100%, 90 80 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 30 percent. There's poor evidence for about 70 percent of what we do. Um, so when people point fingers at me and say, "Hmm, you know, you've you've had them eat more lettuce and tomatoes. You don't have any evidence for that." Uh, number one, I do have some evidence for that. Um, and but but do I really need the same level of ironclad proof that lettuce and tomatoes and other vegetables actually make people healthier as I do if I'm doing surgery on them? I mean, is that, is that reasonable? And I'm not saying I don't want to work towards providing evidence, but just how do, we, how do we deal with this sensibly? What is the tolerable risk for any of the therapies we do? Um, should there be a different standard if the risk is low? Should I be able to say, hmm, let's just see if taking you off Coca-Cola and donuts for breakfast actually makes a difference? I haven't done a double-blind placebo-controlled study, but let's just see if that makes a difference to how you feel through the day. Um, and, and what is full disclosure? What is full disclosure for our patients? How often do we say to them, you know, I think I'd like to do back surgery on you because I see something on the MRI and maybe that'll make a difference. But by the way, in most cases, your back pain won't go away. And if it does, a really good result is that it goes away for 18 months. How many of our back pain surgery patients are told that? Not very many. And I don't mean to just pick on surgeons, it happens in all the fields. When we give out drugs, we give people antidepressants and we kind of glance over what all the side effects are and we we augment what the benefits are. There's a very good series of studies out of Harvard showing that the the differential between antidepressants and placebos, but you have to actually give the placebos, um, is so minuscule that it's really not worth using antidepressants in the vast majority of cases. Now it's not very severe cases, I mean certainly there are indications for antidepressants, but in our society we have, we have medicalized so many things, including sadness. So as soon as you're sad, you need an antidepressant. So what is fibromyalgia? Is it a number on a pain scale? Is it a drug deficiency state? The way I see some of my fibromyalgia new patients come in, you'd look at them and you'd say, well, wow, you must have a major drug deficiency state because you're on 25 drugs. Um, is it a poorly understood condition with a complex collection of symptoms and multiple causes and that of course is my favorite definition of it because I think fibromyalgia is a series of diseases, not diseases, a series of, of conditions. Um, we can't call it a disease yet and these are all some of the things that, are, that can be involved in it. Uh, of course, microglial activation, central sensitization. We know a lot about the central sensitization syndromes. We're going to be hearing a lot about them here. Um, but there's also peripheral pain and stress that can cause central sensitization. So you start out with pain in the periphery and you become centrally sensitized. And Siegfried Menzi, who's one of the giants in this field of of basic research in central sensitization, neuroplasticity, chronic pain, has said that there is no central sensitization without peripheral sensitization. Um, So peripheral sensitization means that our nociceptors, the things that are are, uh, the little receptors that perceive perceive, um, stimuli that then get translated into pain in our brain, Um, they become sensitized as well, and there has been a a really interesting finding of the highest concentration of of, uh, nociceptors is in dense fascia, which we never knew, and we really don't even know the significance of yet. Uh, Stress can induce peripheral sensitization and central sensitization. And then something really interesting is that small fiber neuropathy is much more common than we suspected. And what it can cause is in an inefficient circulation where you take blood from the arterial side and shunt it to the venous side where it bypasses being able to give up its oxygen and good nutrients to the cells, which could account for things like exercise intolerance and brain fog um <clears throat> mitochondrial dysfunction this is a huge area of research right now and it is and it is seen as a cause of peripheral neuropathy which then feeds into what I just said about the arterial to venous shunting now mitochondria are our tiny little organelles that are in each of our cells muscle cells have the highest concentration They're, they make energy Um, They're very susceptible to damage by free radicals. They're the most sensitive DNA we have in our body, and they have a unique DNA
1: uh, that's
0: unique to the mitochondria that gets passed down through the maternal line. And mitochondrial dysfunctions of minor kinds uh, are are becoming much more um, uh, recognized. Um, uh, So they, they... It can be a cause of peripheral neuropathy is now being explored. Um, Also, there are are inflammatory cytokines, which have been shown to cause brain fog. Uh, And there's also mast cells that can be causing bladder irritation. So interstitial cystitis and pancreatitis mast cell release, which are a type of inflammatory cell that release um, inflammatory uh, chemicals um, uh, and a lot of histamine. And so we've been looking at bladder sensitivity lately as a central sensitization phenomenon, but maybe it isn't. Maybe it's mast cells, uh, which is an immune phenomenon. Um, And also something very troubling, in terms of these chronic pain conditions, many of which get called fibromyalgia, is that over my years of practice, I've seen the population get younger and younger and younger. Why is this happening? Why are we seeing kids with fibromyalgia? So with the multifactorial uh, treatment of it, I like to look at all these things, which is everything, mind, body, soul, but in particular, um, self-care. People, the, the analogy I like to use with people is if you, um, if you went to the dentist twice a year and didn't brush your teeth the rest of the time, would you expect to have healthy teeth? And after they get finished being grossed out, they get the picture. They are with themselves every single day. What are they doing to maintain their health and their bodies? I cannot do for them. Drugs cannot do for them. Surgery cannot do for them what they can do for themselves on a daily basis. And that really is the key to, uh, f- to empowering people to recognize that th- what they can do for themselves and, and what, what can change it. And, and that's really a key to transforming the healthcare system. We're no longer the, the sharpshooters with the magic bullet with all the answers. We're here to accompany our patients on the journey that they're taking and to help advise them, to help them make the best decisions they can make around the medical care they want and around their own self-care. Stress management is huge. Uh, mind-body strategies, and avoiding toxics. And you'll notice in the toxics, I have in there polypharmacy. Um, we're exposed now to 80,000 new chemicals that have been put on the market in the last 70 years. 80,000 of them. And when they do biopsies and they do studies, we're full of them. Nobody, Most of those have no safety studies on them at all. And according to the EPA's own website, um, 7% of the chemicals in this country have full safety data. And even if that safety data shows toxicity and harm, it's not enough for the EPA to keep it out of the market. That's horrible. Our babies are being born with these toxics in their body. What do they do to us? We have limited capacity to detoxify. What, what is the limit? Is, is the limit different for different people? Absolutely. We have uh, have, uh, different enzyme systems for methylation, the the COMT system, the MTHFR system. We know that there are SNPs, there are single nucleotide polymorphisms that make some people better at detoxifying and methylating than others. Methylation is required for energy production and detoxification and and turning on and off genes for, for gene expression. Um, these are these are crucial functions. How are we influencing these with with what we 're putting in the environment it's one of the reasons that I recommend people stay away from GMO products because the GMO foods are full of pesticides that 's why they gMO them that 's what roundup ready everything is it's it's re- ready and eager to take uh, as much Roundup as you can pour on it, and it comes through in the food chain. So that's one of the major reasons that it's, it's an issue. You know, I, I, we're starting to get some conversation about this now because of, of Flint, Michigan. And as terrible as what happened in Flint, Michigan is, at least it is shining a light on the, on the problem. And we now have municipalities that are checking for lead in, in the schools. Now, they're checking it in the schools. Are they checking it in your homes? They haven't come to my home yet. But what's the likelihood that it's in my home or somebody else's home? What's the percentage of it? I mean, I, I have, in my, in my practice, I have had people test their water. There's lead in some houses. There's lead, there's 50% of the infrastructure under most cities for water has lead in it. Most of us don't know that. Um, We should at the very least be filtering our water, but we should be vigilant about these things um, because these things are in our environment and affecting us, and we don't know all the ways in which it's affecting us because when you don't recognize a problem, you don't study it. When you don't study it, you don't learn about it. So the days of better things through chemistry, better living through chemistry, I think we've hit the top of the curve a long time ago and we're way down the downside of that slope. We have to be very suspicious of better living through chemistry. I think the acupuncture is working. So great article to read, Uh, what, why, um, if not now, when, if not who, you, and this is about integrative medicine and. um, uh, embracing uh, culture change. Uh, I'm just going to leave you with a little bit of, of, a, a, of a, I don't know, tantalizing detail. Micronized progesterone, which is bioidentical and it's not a synthetic progesterone, is being studied for pain and it's very, very interesting. I've been using it in my practice for about 20 years. It's one of the best sleep medications you can give people. Um, I use it, I've used it only in women from perimenopause onwards, and perimenopause can be anywhere from 30 onwards. Um, it's very, very safe. Um, and there's really good studies on it uh, in animal models on neuropathic pain as well, which would uh, w- which would lead to uh, risk mitigation with neuropathic pain resulting from surgery. And because it's a non-feminizing hormone, it could be used in males and females. Um, stay tuned, read about it, uh, stay on top of it. It'll be a very interesting area. Um, now we've got a few minutes um, for case studies um, or we could have a few minutes for questions what would you prefer questions case studies So the, the question is about patient-centered care, and uh, how are we measuring satisfaction on patient-centered care, and what are some of the pitfalls? Well, certainly some places have realized that if you give people as many opioids as they want, um, you're going to score really high uh, on, the, uh, on the patient-centered care surveys. Um, and so surveys have to change, and, and uh, benchmarks for patient-centered care have to be rational and reasonable. And right now, they're not so absolutely that is, a, that is a, a problem. So Joseph has heartburn and constipation He's an accountant. He's 53, has two kids in college, has a mortgage. His BMI is 32. He has no time for breakfast. He drinks six cups of coffee and three sodas a day. He gets lunch from a lunch truck, and it's all fried. He gets dinner by around 8 a.m., eats it at the television, uh, falls asleep, has a snack before bed when he wakes up in front of the TV. It's pretzels or microwave popcorn. Uh, Doesn't sleep well at all, has five and a half hours of sleep. He, uh, he's been on a PPI for two years, this is two years later, no help particularly, but can't get off it. Uh, he's more tired over time, he's on an antidepressant and his libido is garbage, uh, and he's more depressed because of that. He has worse constipation, he has heartburn that seems to be getting worse. He now has gut uh, motility problems and he's on a drug for that, he's on polyethylene glycol. He's still overweight, he still feels like crap. What's some of the problems here? (laughs) What are some of the iatrogenic problems here? So what do PPIs do? PPIs cause constipation, delayed GI uh, emptying. Stomach acid is essential for life. As soon as you uh, cut out your stomach acid with a PPI, which is very effective, you, uh, you, you start to secrete gastrin like crazy because your stomach knows that you need, uh, you need acid in order to digest your food. The FDA now has a three-month limit on PPIs. They shouldn't be taken for longer than three months unless you have a life-threatening problem. And so we need to go back to the old-fashioned ways of having people deal with their heartburn. And I actually call it heartburn. I don't like the term GERD. There are so many of these uh, initialisms or acronyms. um, I really do think they were invented by marketing companies uh, for drug companies, because they all seem to go with drugs. you call it heartburn and you ask any grandmother, great-grandmother, you know, what, what is it? What should you do? And they say, well, what do you eat? Don't eat that again. Or if you do eat it, you recognize you're going to have heartburn. Just don't eat it every day. And take some bicarbonate of soda. Elevate the head of your bed. Stop eating at bedtime. You're drinking too much coffee. Those, those are the things that actually work. So... When you put somebody on a PPI, you create the risk of osteoporosis, magnesium deficiencies that even the FDA calls life-threatening. I don't even—I used to say this stuff for you know 20 years. Now I'm not even integrative when I say it. I'm mainstream when I say it because the FDA is now saying it. Um, uh, How disturbing is that for my my uh, my my self-image? I'm aligned with the FDA. Um, so uh, uh, you have um, uh, calcium deficiencies, vitamin B12 deficiencies, protein deficiencies because you don't unwrap your, your proteins, unfold the proteins for digestion. You also get less secretion of digestive enzymes from the pancreas because that is triggered by, um, by stomach acid. So you get people off of PPIs. You give them magnesium for constipation, a good quality magnesium. It also deals with muscle cramps and fibromyalgia really well, not the oxide, not the sulfate. And there are a couple of uh, nutrition articles out there in mainstream journals that I've written and in textbooks um, uh, that you can see on ResearchGate, uh, at least the references to them, wherever I'm able to, I do uh, Uh, post the full article and it has details about these things in terms of how to get people off. Um, You improve his diet and you know it's a hard thing to do, hard thing to talk people into so my strategy is I say look let's do an experiment you're 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 coming to me for help I want you to do an experiment with your diet and I'll try and improve their diet. Um, One of the first things I'll get rid of is soda Because it's empty calories, and even if they're getting aspartame and sucralose, they're equally bad. And uh, and people are generally willing to do experiments if I make them time limited, and I will, you know, I'll I'll negotiate with them. And I have to say, I've had uh, contract negotiations that were a lot easier than negotiating vegetables with people. (Laughter) Alex is 32. He's going to night school, single, soda and energy drinks all day. He only sleeps four hours a day because he thinks he's tough. He's doing weight training and cardio, fast food a lot of the time. He's been on a lot of antibiotics over time and has alternating constipation and diarrhea, abdominal pain, sometimes severe. Metamucil, better bowel movements but still pain, motility agent, no help, PPI, no help, antidepressant, no help and really doesn't like the side effects at 32. Um, He had uh, lactose intolerance and H. pylori, no diagnoses from those, Um, trial of opioids which fortunately he didn't like. He's got a microbiome problem from all those antibiotics as a kid. Most of us have a microbiome problem. The microbiome is so diverse, we don't even know what a normal microbiome is. And there are so many surprises uh, about the, the bacterial makeup. In, in ill children in Africa, when they check their microbiome, they can distinguish the children who will have a good prognosis of survival from the children who don't based on one bacteria. You want to give a volunteer a, a name of which one it might be? H. pylori, I heard. Yes, except H. pylori indicates a good prognosis in those children. That's a little counterintuitive for us. Um, H. pylori is not just the bad guy. There's uh, there's very there's one subtype, I, I believe it's only one, that is invasive. That's the one that causes the problems. But H. pylori is a very common bacteria. Um, and you know, different nations have different, uh, different eating habits that changes the, the microbiome. Uh, microbiome in C-section babies is completely different. The mom's vaginal flora changes in the two months before delivery to being almost all lactobacillus. Vaginally born babies are inoculated. C-section babies are not inoculated. And they're finally coming up with the idea that, you know, you need to do a vaginal swab and inoculate the baby with mom's microbiome in order to have it be um, optimal. And that may be the reason that C-section babies get more allergies and have more asthma. Um, So, uh, you know, what's wrong with Alex is he needs to fix up his sleeping and his eating and... uh, and, uh, Stop trying drugs and maybe take some probiotics. Now, Jenny is what you'd call a typical fibromyalgia, um, 25 para uh, legal. She was very athletic until she had a car accident. She went into really vigorous physical therapy and physical therapied herself right into chronic pain. Um, She just didn't give herself enough time to rest. Uh, She's uh, finding it now hard to do her work. She has poor concentration, poor sleep. She has a stomach ache, she has skin rashes, irritable bowel, bladder pain, exercise intolerance. Uh, she eats yogurt and coffee. She's she's kind of half and half in terms of her diet. She drinks sugary drinks for energy. She then tries to be healthy with raisins and nuts. She has salad at dinner, but then she's too tired to cook, so she takes something frozen out of the out of the freezer and pops it. Um, she watches TV till bedtime, then can't sleep. She has uh, these rashes that I'm describing here. Her life's falling apart. Her muscle has cramps. She's on muscle relaxants, antidepressants, low dose opioids, and nothing's helping. And again, this is it's what she eat, drinks, eats, drinks, thinks, feels, and does. She needs to wind all this back and stop looking for for pharmacologic solutions. There are not pharmacologic solutions for her. And that's not to say that there are never pharmacologic solutions. I mean, there are. For some people, a little bit of, of one of the tricyclics at bedtime to help them sleep is it's not a bad idea. Gabapentin can be helpful. But in general, we're better at putting people on drugs without having an end game of when do we take them off the drugs. And that's how people get these collections of 25 drugs. And so there's two circumstances in which I like to take people off drugs. Um, and I've had a lot of experience with it. So the chronic pain patients who come in and they're on you know, dozens of non-life-saving drugs and we just try and slowly peel them back. And the other was a time when I was a hospice doctor and in hospice, you don't get pushback from the primary care practitioners when you take people off of drugs because they're just happy that you're taking over the case and they're, you know, they're, they they have limited expectations. So we'd get these people into hospice and they would be half somnolent, mental functioning wasn't working well, they couldn't get out of bed, they were complaining of pain, and they were on all these non-life-saving drugs. And so I would take them off their statin and their PPI and their non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which by the way kill more people than HIV in this country every year, um, And uh, and and slowly get rid of them and put them on turmeric, put them on omega-3 fish oils, get them some vitamin D, um, and they would wake up about a week and a half later and suddenly they'd be talking to their relatives, suddenly they'd wanna go for a walk, suddenly they'd wanna go shopping with their kids, and suddenly I'd have to discharge them from hospice because they looked way too good to stay in hospice. Um, That happened a lot. Uh, even in and even in people who ultimately were end stage, but they did much better. They had a much better quality of life by being off some of these drugs. It's not to say I denied people morphine for for chronic pain. Absolutely not. Um, we used drugs. We used drugs for sleep. We used them for a lot of things. But there are many times where we we are somebody else. We've inherited a patient on a certain palette of drugs, and we we just kind of don't think about how are we going to get them off? Are these really still necessary? Can we reduce the dose? And, and that's part of whole person care. And it's part of trying to think of things in a different way, trying to think of health first instead of disease modification first. Thank you.